WLRN Edition 71, broadcasting in 3, 2, 1. I was born woman, off my knees I will stand for my liberation, sisters rise again. I was born woman, off my knees I will stand for my Greetings, and welcome to the 71st edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. This is April No, WLRN forest dweller and ardent woman-identified woman. In times of crisis, our priorities can change and shuffle. My priorities always remain fairly constant, however. Women, children, and the natural world. In order for us to win the war against us, we must strategize and organize. That is what this edition is all about. Feminists getting organized. In this podcast, we will hear an excerpt of an interview Thistle did with Beth Lowe, organizer of the upcoming Sisters for Sisters and Courage Calls to Courage events in Madison, Wisconsin this coming April. We'll also hear from Joy Gray of Rev Femme Rebellion a grassroots feminist action group based in the USA. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's Jennifer Billick with her monthly special report on the gender industry. Hi all, this is Jennifer Billick reporting on the global gender industry from the 11th Hour blog. In a recent guest post at the blog, Michelle Uriaru, a member of Manawahin Kariaru, a group of New Zealand Maori women and allies, discusses the connections between what is being called transgender and transhumanism, which is part of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. She calls on feminists and others to start thinking beyond the borders of the current discussions on gender and to connect the dots to the larger picture of the exponential growth of disruptive technologies. We are under a 24-hour state-sanctioned surveillance. Many of us conduct the most intimate parts of our lives, including conversations with family and friends and sexual experiences online. We have conversations with each other that thousands of people can see and respond to at once, and in the span of 15 years, 773 sex control centers, euphemistically called gender-expansive clinics, have emerged in the U.S. alone. These experiences are not unrelated. The state is normalizing the collection of our data, creating a digital world in which and to which we are becoming enslaved. We are quickly becoming fodder for a worldwide eugenics experiment to create a superior species tied to technology. It is imperative that we move fast because this project of transhumanism, which the gender industry is laying the groundwork for, is moving very fast, and the political apparatus for their win has already been built. 
Michelle discusses the enormous resistance to the laws being passed in New Zealand, all the attempts women have made over the years to make their disapproval of men and women's sports, prisons, and safe spaces, the medicalization of children's healthy bodies, the erasure of women in language and law known to politicians, and how women's voluminous pleas and protests are falling on deaf ears. Nothing they do penetrates, and the agenda steamrolls ahead over all women's efforts. Her observations echo what is happening in many other countries with the support of the most powerful institutions, banks, and corporations in the world. As feminists, wisdom dictates that we connect the fight for women's rights to the eugenics project underway to normalize the changing of the human species. We are fighting for women's rights, but ultimately we are fighting for humanity itself, which is why our fight for women's rights are being ignored in so many countries. It isn't just a resurgence of misogyny, but a global agenda to remake us and tie us to a digital world. As depressing as it is to understand this and realize how big the scope of the political apparatus is to accomplish this goal, we must hold fast to the realization that as my friend Derek Jensen has said many times, life wants to live, and it is on our side. All of life is rooting for our win. We can help by refusing to capitulate to this gargantuan lie being instituted that sexual dimorphism is not real. We have to tell the truth. We cannot capitulate or wait for people to catch up to these realizations before we tell the truth. We have to tell the truth now. We have to expose the lie that is being solidified everywhere, not just beg for our rights to be restored. Transgenderism is a corporate illusion. It is not real. Thank you. This has been a special report from the 11th Hour blog for WLRN, Women's Liberation Radio News. Thanks, Jen. This month, we also have a special report from WLRN volunteer Elizabeth Miller, who spoke with Anne Menashe of Feminists in Struggle, or FIST. After Liz's report, we'll turn to the World News segment with Emily Ann Lorenzen. But first, please take a listen to the Getting Organized with Elizabeth Miller portion. Thanks, Liz, for providing us with this new content. Hello, WLRN listeners, and welcome to Getting Organized, an activist primer with Elizabeth Miller. This is a new monthly podcast segment I'll be doing for WLRN. I'm a longtime listener to WLRN and a longtime radical feminist activist and organizer. Many women are engaging in discussions about threats to women's rights around the world. Many of these women would like to know more about how to organize to fight these threats. In this segment, I'll interview women who have created their own organizations and projects to fight these threats. My hope is that this segment will give you ideas and tools to do your own feminist projects and activism. And this month, I'm going to be interviewing Anne Menashe, who is a lawyer and the founder of Feminists in Struggle, which is a national radical feminist organization. Could you tell us about how and why you decided to found Feminists in Struggle, which we call FIST, the acronym is FIST, what your goals were for organizing FIST and kind of the process that you used to found and organize the organization? My vision was to create a grassroots radical feminist organization run by its members on a national basis 
with lots of local chapters. That was my vision. That would uh, be multi-issue, um, would address um, the encroachments of the uh, trans ideology, uh, but not be limited to that, but really, really try to revive a radical feminist movement in the United States. And I know that's incredibly ambitious. Got some people to sign up. As I said, hey, you want to build this new organization? Here's my vision. Here's my dream organization. Are you interested? And I got a lot of people, a lot of women to sign up. And then we started having meetings um, uh, and, and try to get put together a statement of principles. And we have 13 principles that are on our website. Uh, and we started getting organized bylaws, the whole business. So that took a long time because we had lots of women participating in this on phone call, or teleconferences at that point. I don't think there were Zoom meetings or teleconferences. And so we had a whole series of those uh, and got you know, kicked off uh, three years ago, March 8th. So, um, so and that's you know, still the, the vision. Um, it's, uh, we were uh, set back by the, the, the pandemic because we were about to have a national conference and we canceled. Um, but we've been uh, trying to uh, you know, build our activism, uh, uh, do a lot of education. Uh, we have an education campaign that's an education series that's just been launched um, and uh, still trying to you know, create some, a grassroots uh, localized presence as well. So uh, we have a lot of ambitions. We have a long way to go. Um, and, yeah, so tell us yeah. more about what FIS main projects, past, present, and future have been and are. So our signature contribution was the feminist amendments to the to the Equality Act, which was uh, drafted by me and two other lawyers in FIST. Um, and that was again a many months process of trying to write this collectively. Uh, in order to um, keep the good parts of the bill and preserve the rights of um, the expansion of gay and lesbian rights uh, and, uh, and the rights of people who are gender nonconforming uh, without eroding the sex-based rights of women and girls. So we, we wanted to make it real clear and, and protect it, make sure that women were defined as a sex, were protected with women that would have rights to our own spaces and programs. Um, and that would not be encroached on uh, through um, gender identity. So, so we spent a huge amount of time with that. Uh, we actually did form a coalition to work on that um, with, uh, with the LGB Alliance USA and uh, the Georgia Green Party as two main actors. And we did some lobbying. We you know, presented testimony, written testimony before Congress. And um, so, so we were working on that. That because it didn't look like it was about to get out of committee. We that's kind of taken a back seat at the moment. We're not sure if we'll revive it or not. But that's that was a big area of our activity. Tell us about the um, the multi part feminist education um, series that you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it's called our Radical Feminist Roots. Actually, it's 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 conceived as a two part um, series. Uh, uh, our radical feminist roots is goes to the history of the a little bit of the first wave and getting really heavily into the second wave, uh, and uh, so we've um, yeah, about sixty women have signed up, um, and uh, we're reading books and articles and seeing films and having discussion. Uh, so the whole point is to 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 learn history, learn from our history 
And, and this is, I think, but really important when you're trying to revive a movement that uh, women are uh, aware of the history of women who've come before. Thank you, Liz. To hear the full report, check out our YouTube channel. For more information about feminists and struggle, please visit feministstruggle.org. We look forward to hearing more of these five-minute segments each month. Now we turn to the WLRN World News segment with Emily Ann Lorenzen for this Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. This is April Now. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. Thanks, April. In Japan, for the first time, more women were accepted into medical schools than men for the 2021 academic year. The average pass rate for women at the country's 81 medical schools was 13.6% compared to men's 13.51%. In 2018, there were exam-rigging scandals where universities were manipulating test scores to limit female enrollment. Since this revelation, women's medical school acceptance rates have risen. Thailand is changing its surrogacy laws to allow foreigners to rent Thai women's bodies. The current law allows surrogacy for only Thai couples or foreigners who have a Thai partner. Thailand residents also cannot send their frozen eggs or sperm overseas. The revisions to the law would change that. Thai surrogates would also have to register into a system to make sure the baby will not be trafficked. The hospitals will track the women and babies during the pregnancy and after the delivery. The surrogacy industry in Thailand will have more opportunities to make money off of women's wombs if these revisions are accepted. Ecuador legislators have approved regulations for abortions for women and girls in cases of rape. The Constitutional Court ruled that abortion should be decriminalized in cases of rape last April. Previously, abortions were only allowed when a woman's life was at risk. In cases of rape, women over 18 can abort until 12 weeks of pregnancy, and teens and girls under 18 can abort until 18 weeks of pregnancy. Indigenous women, or those who live in rural areas, also have until 18 weeks to get an abortion. Abortion rights campaigners said that the time limits are too restrictive and would force women and girls to continue to get illegal abortions. In Canada, indigenous women are being sterilized against their will. These women are often told that they need a C-section and after they sign the consent form for the surgery, tubal ligation is added. Tubal ligation is a procedure where the woman's fallopian tubes are cut, then cauterized. In some cases, these women are told that the procedure is reversible when it is not, and in other cases, they are manipulated into believing they will die if they have another baby. These women are in vulnerable states and cannot reasonably consent to sterilization. Lawyer Alyssa Lombard has filed five class action lawsuits in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Quebec, which involve thousands of indigenous women. 
Malika Pop was forcefully sterilized and she said, quote, It didn't really feel at the time I had the option of saying no. Like, these doctors are there to help me. I believed it at the time. And I believe I was in survival mode. Unquote. For Women Scotland, a grassroots women's organization, won a motion to stop the Scottish government from redefining woman in the UK Equality Act. The government ultimately decided to not change the definition because it would have violated the protected characteristic of sex. The co-director of For Women Scotland, Trina Budge, said, quote, The judges have restated that the protected characteristic of sex refers to either a male or a female, and that provisions in favor of women must, by definition, exclude those who are biologically male." Unquote. In contrast, the Scottish census will allow anyone to choose either male or female, regardless of what their birth certificate says or if they have a gender recognition certificate. Fair Play for Women, another grassroots women's organization, lost a legal challenge against allowing anyone to choose their sex on the census. Fair Play for Women argued that people were lawfully allowed to answer the question based on either their birth certificate or their gender recognition certificate. Since census legislation did not make a decision regarding the sex question, the Scottish ministers were able to draft the question in this way. Fair Play for Women said, quote, The guidance proposed for the sex question will jeopardize the collection of accurate data on sex in the Scottish census and erodes the harmonization of data collected via censuses across the UK." Unquote. Calls for a boycott of the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar have erupted online after an official was forced to leave the nation to avoid criminal charges for reporting sexual assault to the police. Paula Shitakat is from Mexico, and she was charged with extramarital sex after she reported being raped in her home. She could face seven years in prison and 100 lashes. She was told by lawyers that she could avoid conviction by marrying her rapist. She decided instead to leave the country and to give up her dream job. The court still plans on sentencing her on March 6 in her absence. She said, quote, The international community has excused and even defended archaic monarchies that maintain laws that promote modern slavery, such as the Gulf states. The World Cup is about to be held in the same country where a woman cannot obtain custody of her children upon divorce, unquote. Ukrainian women are joining in battle as Russia continues to invade the country. 10% of the Ukrainian military is made up of women, but civilians are also ready to fight the Russian military. Some women are leaving the country with their children, as their male partners and relatives stay behind, since men between 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country so that they can fight in the war. A video went viral of a Ukrainian woman confronting Russian soldiers, where she tells them to put sunflower seeds in their pockets so that flowers would grow when they die on the Ukrainian land. 
human rights campaigners warn that women are likely to be one of the hardest hit by Russia's invasion of Ukraine through sexual violence being used as a weapon of war. Saturday, March 12th is D-Trans Awareness Day. There will be events held around the United States. For more information on how to participate or on how to support detransitioners, go to dtransawareness.org. WLRN is hosting a book club discussion with Kara Dansky, lawyer, author, and feminist activist, on Sunday, March 13th at 3 p.m. CST on Zoom. She'll read a chapter from her book, The Abolition of Sex, How the Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls. She'll also be answering questions. If you'd like to join the Zoom discussion, please send an email for the Zoom link to info at womensliberationradionews.com. Write Zoom link for book discussion in the subject line and we will send you the link. The book is roughly 135 pages long and was published in November 2021. It talks about U.S. law and Congress, the administration, and the courts. Kara's book is available via Goodreads at goodreads.com. Peggy Lurs, an American lesbian feminist from Burlington, Vermont, passed on February 22, 2022. Miss Lors was a key mover and shaker of the early LGB movement in Burlington. She was a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and she also produced the monthly program called the Feminist Media Review for the Center for Media and Democracy. WLRN is saddened to hear of her passing as her contributions to our feminist movement were monumental. We send our condolences to friends, family, and sisters everywhere who are grieving her loss. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm Emily Ann Lorenzen. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at womensliberationradionews.com and let us know what's going on. cover of Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves from Sasha Allen, Amber Iman, and Keela Settle. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Thistle did with Beth Lowe. Beth Lowe is a mother, a lifelong progressive, and feminist. 
Prior to becoming involved in radical feminist activism, she spent a decade in various financial and analyst roles in corporate America. In addition to feminist action, she's an advocate for the legalization and destigmatization of cannabis consumption. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in feminist activism and how you got interested in organizing for the feminist movement? Sure. Um, you know, I've I've been a lifelong feminist. I always consider myself a feminist, but I really don't have a long background in actual feminist organizing or feminist activism. Um, I guess what really piqued my interest was when I started to learn a little bit about gender ideology and what kind of got me into that realm was probably back in 2015 or 2016, I, uh, I came upon it through um, a group called Canamama Clinic that's run by Gina Hoke. I know that uh, she's very active in a lot of our uh, radical feminist activism and she's part of a lot of these actions that are are done but that that group was an extension of her consulting company and her business which was um to promote peaceful parenting and um really destigmatize cannabis use in um motherhood but it really was as i as i found out it was really a lot more than that and there were a lot of uh underpinnings in in that group about uh, radical feminism and and sort of the notion of gender ideology, gender identity politics uh, that wasn't really mainstream in my in my world. I know that it had been already uh, around for a while, but it hadn't been present in my in my in my in anywhere that I'd seen. I think that I'd heard trans women are women. I hadn't given a lot of thought to it. I'd heard they just want to pee, right? That's that's about that's about as far as I'd gotten, and so. I really started to learn a lot from from Gina from that group and kind of challenged the narrative that what is a woman? What does it mean to be a woman if you're not using these definition, the actual definition, adult human female? How can you identify as a woman without using these patriarchal gender stereotypes? And it made a lot of sense. And as it became more mainstream here and a lot more um, things started to happen when you're seeing women being denied uh, same-sex spaces and rape Rape crisis centers yes men and women's sports uh, the medicalization of children Um, all of these things started becoming a lot more mainstream a lot more popularized a lot more accepted and I became a lot more outwardly critical vocally critical and I kind of like a lot of women I think started waiting for someone to say, okay, this is, this has gone too far. We're not going to really put rapists in um, prisons with rape victims. We're not really going to have uh, irreversible surgeries for young girls. And it didn't happen. And I think I just couldn't sit idly by and not get more involved. And that's, that was really prompted me to take more action and um, find ways that I could get, get involved. So Mm -hmm. that's how it came to be that I, I am involved in this movement. Great. And what's your philosophy of feminist organizing? What are some strategies and tactics that you see working and other strategies and tactics that maybe are problematic in our feminist movement in your view? And, you know, us being socialized female in our women only spaces, how does that impact our organizing. 
Right. So again, being new to feminist organizing, I don't know that I have a philosophy per se, but I do, I have a background, a business background. And so I guess my approach is really just similar to um, any project management approach. When you have kind of like a cross-functional team, a team of um, women, people that have different skill sets, different personalities, different communication styles, just a lot of differences. Um, it's important to really understand those differences and meet people where they are and work to those different communication styles, those different um, aptitudes. So if you have, let's say, if you have someone who is really autonomous in how they work, they like to take something, run with it, and report back. You're not going to be successful if you try to micromanage them and vice versa. And so I think that's that's really critical in working with um, large groups of women, especially when you're um, kind of spread so far across the country, you're not having in-person in meetings, you're not getting to physically be with each other. You have to have a certain level of open communication, transparency. I think it's really important to set clear expectations with um, with each other. I think there has to be a level of trust and respect too that happens among women. We are so used to fighting everybody, right? Like we get all of this hate from outside the the antagonists, the trans rights activists are always coming at us. So we seem to have like this level of shield, this level of defense up. And then when we kind of come together to work towards a common goal, we we have a common goal, but there are women who have different views or different approaches to achieving that common goal. And sometimes it's necessary to sort of just lay our defenses down, our swords down and establish a trust with each other and a rapport that, that sometimes is hard to remember to do and, um, you know, making sure that we're heard and we're hearing and being heard and letting go a little bit of the ego and the hubris and being able to admit when you make a mistake and um, moving forward from that. I think those are important. When you talk about female socialization and the pitfalls of working in groups when um, with female socialization, that that is such a good point because again, going back to my experience in um, corporate America, it is so obvious the differences between men and women and how they are, how they approach their work and how they are rewarded for their, um, their approach to their work. Men are naturally just more aggressive, confident, and bold in how they go about getting things done. And that is rewarded. That is that is how they get fast tracked to the top. A woman who does the same thing is almost always um, called negative names and and stunted in her track in the company and her For the exact same behavior, exact same behavior. Mm -hmm. And so when you move into so when I you know when you move into a, a space where it's entirely women, I think I see the same. You don't see the the contrast because there are not men, but you see the same kind of. Um, Issues in that women, we are so, the women that I work with and I see in this movement are so intelligent. They are so well-studied, well-aware. They have so much experience that there's there's sometimes just a level of confidence that that doesn't present itself when it's men. And, and these men are not 
they don't have the reason to be confident as so many women that I see, you know? Um, so that's one thing that I see. Another is that I think that female socialization from a young age, we're taught to, that we're in competition with each other, you know? And um, that even though, and, and that, that persists, even though we know that we're trying to have a collective of sisterhood and working towards the same goal, at a subconscious level, perhaps there is this level of competition and, and that that may persist and that sometimes can, I think, get in the way of achieving the ultimate goals that we are aiming to, to achieve. Yeah. All right. Well, what are some projects that you're working on right now? What's coming up in Madison, April 22nd through the 24th? Well, coming up in Madison is an event called Sisters for Sisters. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about Madison first. Um, Madison, your hometown of Madison, I'm going to talk a lot about this like you already know, but Madison is sort of ground zero for gender ideology in the state of Wisconsin and otherwise conservative state. It's like the progressive center of a conservative state. There are, I think, two gender clinics in Madison. There are... Um, you know, it's a seat of political power. That's where the capital is. There's been, um, I think the public schools have been captured there. There's just a lot of uh, infiltration of gender identity, politics, gender ideology within Madison. And um, you know that your troubles and your cancellation and your harassment, um, including by the, by the DA, the legal, the state's wielding the power against against you has really been, um, I guess, the impetus to have this event in in Madison, um, which is Sisters for Sisters, and I'll get a little bit into that in a moment. But it's really important that we have women show up. And the theme of this whole weekend is kind of courage calls to courage. And we want women to come out. We want to show the Madisonians, we want to show the country, we want to show the world that we're not going to be silenced. We're not going to be shut up. You, you know, we have the right to have a life in the public, be able to engage in civil discourse in, um, in, in without, without fear of harassment, without being pushed to the side, they, they can't cancel all of us. And so we are going to both figuratively and literally take back the public square. And Madison is a great place to do that. Um, like I said, it's the it's the capital, it's the seat of power, and um, it's actually the town square. And that's where a lot of uh, discussions and, and um, protests and things of that nature happen. And it's a cool city. I know you love your city of Madison. It's uh, it's it's really neat. It's got the two lakes with the isthmus going through it. And there's sort of a a, a magic about it. And I'll, and that sort of ties in a little bit to some of the events we're going to be doing um, with Sisters for Sisters. So it starts on Friday night. Um, there is going to be a critical mass bike ride. On turf Friday. traffic. Turf traffic. That's right. Turf traffic. So that's going to be on Friday evening. Uh, there'll be a potluck, Sisters Feed Sisters, for all the women who are coming in. Some of the local women will help out with feeding everybody. And we'll have some um, some training, some nonviolent direct action training to ensure that everyone is aware of how to engage or rather not engage with antagonistic uh, trans rights activists. We want to be sure to maintain um, nonviolent behavior. And the next day, we'll uh, we'll get into 
some of the actions we're going to be doing in the morning direct action, there'll be various affinity groups and um, different actions we can take. Women are encouraged to participate or not based on their comfort levels. But one of the things we're going to be doing is a turf scavenger hunt that has, you know, is sort of themed around Harry Potter and the magic of that. So we'll have turf dust that sort of protects us in, in, in our endeavors. And then there will be a um, speaker's corner, soapbox, kind of street preachy sense to it. And, and everyone will be able to, if they'd like, get up, talk for a few minutes and, um, and say, say what they want, say their piece. After that, we'll be taking a break. We'll be going to the Madison Public Library where WLRN will be presenting um, a event, Courage Calls to Courage, Feminists Speak in Solidarity. Uh, that is a free event to the public. There will be five speakers, yourself, Lear Keith, and Jeanette Cooper. And after that, we will have a open mic. So uh, you'll be hosting an open mic. It will be open to everyone at Sisters for Sisters to bring your creative works. So we're really excited to have that, um, that evening uh, of just sisterhood and, and collaboration. The next day is really kind of action-packed with um, with workshops for our conference. It's participant-led and generated. We already have some really great ones. Those are up on our website. And as we get more, more of those women filling out their interest in hosting a workshop, we will be putting those up on the website, but there, it'll be a great opportunity to learn, to network, to just um, ask questions and, and uh, have a really good time. The keynote speaker for that day is Miriam Benjalom. She'll be She'll be presenting during lunch. At the end of the evening, we're going to have a slideshow and a like a prize for the winner of the scavenger hunt. And we're going to cap it all off with the turf fire on Sunday night. And that is again uh, Saturday, Friday to Sunday, April 22nd to the 24th. The website, if you're interested in, and you should be interested, we want all the women that we can to come out as www.sisters, the number four sisters2022.com. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's going to be really, really exciting and really a great opportunity to stand up, to be on the offense, kind of showing these people that we're not afraid and, and we're coming, we're coming to Madison in mass. Awesome. I'm so, I'm, I'm so thrilled. Like I never would have thought this was going to happen five years ago you know, when I first started getting attacked in a major way by different community members who are part of these institutions that have been captured by the trans cult, um, I felt really kind of alone and isolated and definitely singled out and ostracized. And with all of these women coming to Madison, it's like, oh, I finally feel like, oh, things are going to be okay, you know? Um, so, Thank you for getting organized um, in this way, you know, being attracted to organizing with Sisters for Sisters. It's, it just, it feels so good to have that gesture of support and real material support because you're going to be here in person. What's really great is that there are women coming out of the woodwork here in Madison that um, have been coming. You mentioned the fire on the last night of Sisters for Sisters and I just want our listeners to know that in Madison, and I encourage women to do this all over the country, find a place, a city park that allows you to have a fire and then do fires for women to come and just, especially in the wintertime, it's like 
it's symbolic, you know, and it also warms you up. <laughs> and it's so cozy and lovely to have sister time around a fire. So I'm excited that we're ending our weekend with a fire in this very special city park that sisters here in Madison have been congregating around for the last few months. Yeah. So thank you so much, Beth. This is Joe Brew. You are listening to WLRN. Sia, singing the song Titanium. Now we turn to an interview Thistle did with Joy Gray of Rev Femme Rebellion. Joy Gray is a victim advocate and BOTG, that's boots on the ground, feminist activist, who helped co-found Rev Femme Rebellion. Their BOTG group spent the past year traveling the U.S., protesting the gender industry, educating the public, and empowering women to stand up for their rights. The group's mission is to help influence societal change for better trauma-informed care, safeguarding policies, and protections from the devastation of MVAWG, male violence against women and girls. Thank you for joining me today, Joy. Um, let's let's just get started with you uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in feminist activism and organizing. Sure. So. Um... I have a, a long history of victim advocacy, and that's really where I started in this and where I hope to continue the journey because I grew up um, with medical trauma as a child. So I connect with, um, you know, trying to prevent harm to children through the medical transitioning. That's just a personal connection of mine. I also, in victim advocacy, it's a lot of um, preventing harm and, and taking the power and control and giving it back to the survivor. And I think when it comes to trauma-informed care and policy, that's what my passion is, is improving trauma and care, trauma-informed care and policy. And to do that, you really have to change the policy to get people to understand how to react to traumatic situations or people that have experienced trauma. So sorry to kind of scramble at first to start on this because I kind of have a lot of different interests in this specific radical feminist activism. Um, but for myself, I'd say the big kickstart to, to going boots on the ground and talking to people in person was after the death of my mom. 
she passed away in 2015 from uterine cancer. And it wasn't until after she passed that I discovered radical feminism and started to have a context for the specific types of misogyny that she endured um, growing up and existing and struggling with different things like her health and her weight as an adult. So that kind of opened up my eyes to we should be having these tough conversations about misogyny, about um, what, what truly empowering women means, which is conversations a lot of people don't want to have. So I woke up to that necessity in 2015, but because of the trauma, I didn't get back into school until 2019. And at that point, I had fully peaked about gender ideology and I went in with open eyes and I started asking questions because my school had implemented this gender neutral bathroom. And it was the, all the, all the talk of the campus that it would be so inclusive and available to everybody that wanted to use it. And from a victim advocacy and a rad femme point of view, you think, all right, like that's the third space. People that want to use it can. And then you also have the women's rooms. But I found out afterwards, after doing a little bit of digging, which I've learned through victim advocacy really is that's where I've gotten my specialty doing that, reading policy, asking questions of people in charge. I found out that um, they had, out of the other side of their mouth, very quietly adopted self-ID policies for existing bathrooms. And so what that meant is that there were no longer women's rooms. After I went back to school in 2019 and found out that they had gotten rid of the women's rooms and made all bathrooms gender neutral, effectively, anybody could go into anyone they wanted to. And I found out through a tutor of mine who was Muslim that she no longer could use any of the bathrooms for that reason. And I realized these policies are not just affecting survivors, because from my from my perspective, it was a huge safeguarding violation of, of women who might need might need sex specific spaces for trauma, but that now this woman's religious rights were being infringed upon because she and other other women from other religions can't be in any state of undress where there might be a male, regardless of how that man identifies. They that is a violation. So this clear. Uh, undeniable conflict of rights is what really started heating up my my anger and my outrage about what was happening in our country and what was happening to girls and and women in all of these different ways so coming at my forming my opinion through victim advocacy is what made me realize we need to be speaking up there needs to be more of us that have the courage to get out there and and say the truth and speak up for those who are marginalized. And is and that happening? Op- is that happening? Do you do you feel that there is it's, a movement that's been ignited in in the United States? I think a lot more slow going than um, in other places because we're so big, we're so spread out. And Red Femme Rebellion, we traveled more than twenty one thousand miles over the course of six months last year, going all over the country, and it really made me appreciate one how big and varied the country is, how how specific concerns affect different areas very uniquely, but also that a plane ride is a plane ride, or a phone call is a phone call. Adjusting for time zones isn't really that hard once you get practiced at it, and and realizing that it was so possible to connect with women and 
get out on the streets, I think we are seeing an upswell in that. I mean, more women that are willing to speak out on social media, it's kind of a trickle down effect. It's a lot less that are, that are comfortable coming out on the streets, but I would say my number one goal is true empowerment of women and encouraging them to come out on the streets because that's just where all of the meaningful, mind-changing conversations I've had, hundreds at this point, have been boots on the ground, have been when I've gone out and just said what I think and what I feel and, and come from a point of not attacking anyone for what they think, but approaching people where they're at and saying, look, I can understand where you're coming from and even respect your right to believe something I don't. But we need to be able to have this middle ground of victim advocacy, of trauma-informed safeguarding where there isn't a conversation, you know, it's, it's not a debate over whether women's only spaces need to exist, that we can all acknowledge they need to exist and then move forward with what do you need? What do I need from that point? But I found that the, the big, the biggest surprise for me was that from spending all my time, all my time online, all my time learning about radical feminism, reading about radical, radical feminism, most of it online, I was nervous, very nervous. And, and you know, going to a, a liberal college that has erased women, not, from our, not just from our bathrooms and policies, but from their own women's center that, that tells you if you don't believe that men can be women, that you aren't welcome there. The women's center has in, intimidates women from, from seeking services. These are unacceptable boundary violations. And I think, it really surprised me that getting out and I expected that a lot of people be a lot more angry or, or attack me. And, you know, there's people that, that shout F you people that fuck us off and we've had negative reactions, but there hasn't been a single protest I've walked away from not feeling empowered and like I've helped change minds. And can you describe these protests? Like if, if I'm a woman and I'm just peaking and I want to get out on the street and do boots on the ground activism and have conversations with people and change minds. How do, how do I find my local street protest? And, and how have you been in RevFem Rebellion organizing street protests? Where do the other protesters come from if you're traveling from city to city? Well, that's the beauty of the internet, right? Is, is forming those connections, being able to reach out across the country and see who knows who um, connecting with radical feminists on Facebook. Sometimes it's on the street. We had, we attended an abortion rally, abortion rights rally in DC. And even though we were the very small group of radical feminists there from like a bunch of different groups, I included that up do this protest, we actually recruited some volunteers, women who were volunteering for um, the National Organization for Women, and they didn't realize that their own literature with all their chants and all their information about abortion had erased the word women. It didn't reference women at all, and they were shocked. And so it was just meeting them on the street, sometimes going as a small group, you actually meet people. And we now have with um, different chapters of now that we wouldn't have connected with otherwise. So that was amazing. But my, my advice to the average woman or the everyday woman who doesn't know where to start, 
I would say start connecting online. I mean, that's just the easiest way to connect with women in your area, but also be the start. And I think that's where RevFem Rebellion, our focus on boots on the ground and safeguarding campaign and true empowerment of women is encouraging and enabling women to, to use their voice. The biggest protest we did over the course of these, this past six months to a year, closer to six months, is we did a nationwide free speech for women protest. And the big difference, the, the, the style change or the method change that we did was instead of asking women to all meet together at one place and either do all the traveling to get across the country, make their own signs, um, basically do all that work themselves, we tried to do as much work as we could for them to make it as accessible and approachable as, as possible because at the end of the day, we want it to be fun. And it is fun to go out and use your voice, get mad, say your, say your, your piece, that is fun. And it's fun to do it with your friends. That's why I say, be the start if you can. But in that protest, what we did was we sent out um, packages in the mail these big tubes and inside these packages we had already created the posters so we did we made cardboard stencils where we stenciled out in cardboard free speech for women and then we were targeting three different um, social media companies we were targeting twitter youtube and facebook because they're the prime offenders of silencing women and banishing us for having non-male approved points of view so we had that each stencil that said Twitter, Facebook, or, or um, YouTube silences or bans women, right? We sent a package of the posters and um, some swag. So we got different organizations to send us stickers and buttons and whatever they wanted to send so that we could include it in the packages. And we also sent um, masks. So we sent our logo, the Ref and Rebellion logo, with um, popsicle sticks. So if they wanted to be anonymous, they had the option of holding up like our mat, our, our, our logo kind of looks like a face. Like I, I think I, it looks like a scary monster face to me and I like it. Um, so it works if you wanted to cover your face. And so all these women got these packages that were ready to go. So mm -hmm. we told them, do what you can. We didn't want it to be a, a stressful event. We didn't want people to put women to put themselves at risk. We wanted women to be comfortable and to do whatever they felt they could. So for some of us, we had experienced protesters in major cities. So like Chicago and Detroit and a bunch of them in California. And we were, those, those protesters led groups. So if we had experienced protesters that wanted to get a group together and do one of the cities where there were corporate offices, then they were absolutely able to do that. But there were women who either didn't want to meet up with strangers or wanted, felt more comfortable going alone or wanted to be completely anonymous that they just went with a, with a friend. And they went just to go outside and take the pictures and then maybe have a day. So you were saying basically that there were opportunities for all levels of participation from just like showing up, stress-free, um, materials being provided for you all the way to maybe get, getting more involved, making your own stencil or sign. Um, and that that is 
a method of organizing that you're employing so that you can maximize the number of women who are able to participate, it sounds like, right? Right, right. And I want to encourage women that this is totally possible because once you start, once you get out there on the street and you realize how possible it is, it, it just takes that stress off and you're able to kind of wonder, well, what do I want to do and what am I capable of if I want to do more? So I really try to emphasize that whatever you feel you're capable of is enough. Just start where you're at. And we found great success with that. I mean, we hit 25 different cities. We had more than 50 women participating and engaging with them and kept, you know, we planning about who's going where and what their plan was going into it and like keeping up with them through the day and getting their pictures throughout the whole day. It was, it was amazing. I, one of our sisters actually had a headlight out and got pulled over on her way. It was like kind of nighttime-ish when she ended up going. And the cops saw the signs in the back of her car and said, oh, I love when, when people use their freedom of speech. Have a nice night. It was really great to her. Oh, and that was cool. just kind of more, more fun, like a fun, another fun story from the protest. So that's, that's something that we do, I say, that's a little different and has been, has been very successful. But we always try to, to emphasize we don't want any women to, to do anything that's going to put them, you know, at a risk of being hurt. We really try to emphasize um, NVDA, which is nonviolent direct action. So we're never engaging um, in, in fights. We're never shouting inappropriate things at people. We're always just being pro-women. And anyone who's trying to accuse someone being pro-women of being anti-trans is, is telling on themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of us have taken the stance at this point. I mean, I know this is where I'm at, where I am definitely anti-trans. And I think of trans as an ideology that is harmful to girls and women and all of society. So I myself can say I'm anti-trans, but I know I know what you mean. Oh, and I don't want women. Oh, I just was saying, I, I really appreciate that. And I personally share that pretty much that same point of view but in terms of my activism and, and talking to the everyday person um it is it I, I think if I have um like if I say like one of my strengths that I'm the proudest of is that I can connect with absolutely any person and in general I'm able to express how harmful I believe gender ideology is after meeting with them on on that ground of you know we got to be able to understand we got to be able to point out misogyny right so I'm not for, for silencing anyone, but from my, from my personal point of view and engaging with the public, that I've had a lot of success in that. But I totally respect, I mean, we gotta be here for women first and, and always. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And I also respect good organizing and methods of communicating with people and meeting them where they're at. I think that that's the only way that we're going to a mass, a critical mass, is if we can meet people where they're at and take baby steps towards understanding that transgender ideology is harmful, not just to women and girls, but to the people who uh, believe in it. And to really, I mean, it's, right. it's been extremely harmful to progressive politics and progressive movements 
in yep. general. I mean, the environmental movement has been captured. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has been captured. So, but yeah, baby steps with people that you're just, that may be unfamiliar with the issue and that you're just meeting up with on the streets. I have a question about the free speech for women protest. Did Facebook or YouTube or Twitter ever acknowledge you at all? The people, the employees at the offices absolutely did, but no, no one came out to talk to us. They were looking at us like we were zoo animals, like what are these people doing coming here and holding with these signs? But nobody, nobody really harassed us. In fact, when we went to take pictures in front of the metaverse sign, the woman that was the guard out front was she was comfortable and it kind of made us feel bad like she wasn't aggressive towards us like kind of being like take your pictures and get along um but not formally no one ever reached out to us and that's kind of the point isn't it i mean they're just they just ignore us no matter how much we we try to to raise an issue but we did get so much engagement online and in person um, over that action, there were so many women who reached out to me and said, thank you for this. Like, it was so cool to see your photos out there. Like I've been silenced or I've lost an account with whatever platform. And that is a huge part of not why I do it, but it feels good to do it. So the I point of the protest so was, was for me personally, it was my first, um, like my big plan protest. And for me, it was, it was engagement of women. It was how this was something that so many women had experienced or knew someone who experienced. I knew so many women felt passionately about this. And I felt like it would just reach so many more voices that would be able to share that experience. And then the goal for me was to get as many women out on the streets doing boots on the ground as I could. And it was the most successful protest we had. So I was really, really happy with the turnout. I was really grateful with, with how many women came out and, and showed support. What's next for RevFem Rebellion? So right now, after our protest with the swim meets, and now that we have experience going inside the, the meet to protest, as well as standing outside the meet to protest, we're going to um, keep basically raising noise about, about women's sports. And then as far as other areas where we're planning some protests coming up in the future, we have um, anti-porn in our site, so uh, anti-pornography protests, as well as a femicide awareness protest, because we are up to five women a day murdered um, at the hands of male violence against women and girls, and it's really, really um, terrifying and unacceptable, and I think we should be talking about it more, raising more awareness. So those are two, two passion projects for us. Um, and we're going to be continuing to travel and show up at these places to make sure our voices are heard. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today, Joy. Thank you for having me on. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. You are listening to WLRN. has gone digital, but not really. 
Since the arrival of the internet and the worldwide transition from a solely physical reality to an increasingly digital one, it's become more and more popular to think of oneself as politically active because you make social media posts espousing your positions and participate in forums that give people in your camp a place to complain, theorize, share knowledge, and fantasies. How much does any of this online talk accomplish in the material world? From where I'm standing, I don't see any significant progress made by radical and lesbian feminists in the last decade or two if we measure progress by the number of women in the world who are truly living feminist lives, or by the rate of male violence and sexual predation against females. What we've done, thanks to the internet, is keep feminist consciousness alive through helping a consistently small number of women and teen girls wake up and stay awake. This is a valuable and meaningful accomplishment, but it isn't enough. At the end of the day, we need feminist activism that happens in meat space. Most of it won't move the needle even a little, but without that physical activism, the needle doesn't move at all. There are so many different ways we can be active as radical and lesbian feminists offline, and I admit I myself haven't done a good job so far of taking up that work. This is a reminder to myself as much as to the women listening. If we're serious about making a dent in patriarchy, about resisting male power and oppression of females, we have to do more than talk online. We have to do more than create content. Female separatism is a good start, though it needs to be consciously informed by feminist consciousness. I always come back to female separatism, and at this point, that shouldn't surprise you. I've been saying for a while now that separatism is feminism's greatest tool and ultimate conclusion. But even separatism isn't worth much without the strategy, consciousness, and corresponding in-person feminist activism our movement has been lacking since feminism's golden era. What can radical and lesbian feminist activism look like offline? I'm not the authority on that. There's a lot of work to be done and none of us can do it all as individuals. We have to pick what we want to dedicate ourselves to. Anti-war activism, anti-racist work, helping and supporting lesbians to secure legal protections, disability work, anti-capitalist agitation, and yes, consciousness raising that happens in person. Some of our in-person activism may target the law, public policy, and electoral politicians, but I think ultimately the most valuable work we can do is totally divorced from these male institutions. Let liberal women handle that sort of activism, unless you feel personally called to do it. What radical and lesbian feminists can do that liberal women can't or won't is raise female consciousness into a radical and ultimately female separatist place through leading by example. Holding every male accountable for his misogyny, no exceptions. Giving up femininity, including makeup, high heels, plastic surgery, long hair, pornified and otherwise feminized clothing, submissive and heterosexually oriented behavior, etc. Actively working to unlearn our own racism and classism and lesbian hating through study and discussion. Choosing to be child-free if we don't already have kids. Challenging all expressions of male supremacy, racism, classism, heterosexism, gender, and lesbian hating where and when we can safely do so. 
and maybe even when it's dangerous. I want to see radical and lesbian feminists marching again, protesting again, in the streets, full of rage, yelling and flipping off the media and carrying signs that say kill all rapists and lesbians are powerful. I want to see radical and lesbian feminists unapologetically pissed off on TV, telling the nation and the world that men can go to hell for what they do to women and girls. I want to see radical and lesbian feminists openly decrying femininity, heterosexuality, the nuclear family, capitalism, racism, war, and classism to anyone and everyone who will listen. Unbothered by the masses calling us crazy and evil, seated in our power, confident that we're the only ones who see the truth, unwilling to sell out or give up even though this battle against men and their female allies is clearly a lost cause. I want to see radical and lesbian feminists brave enough to show up in person to connect with each other, to stake our rightful place in the political struggle for justice and female liberation. I want to see us going up against the liberals and the right wing publicly. I want to see us finally setting an example in the 21st century of female bravery, female power, female political independence, energy, the anger, the passion we once had and have never had, what it takes to get us women, us lesbians, to burn down heteropatriarchal cities over femicide and rape and pernicious anti-lesbian persecution. That's what I want to see. When are we going to show up at the White House and the Capitol building and the Pentagon to call these men what they are? Rapists, pedophiles, johns, perverts, war criminals, and female haters. When are we going to start calling out female celebrities for perpetuating pornified femininity and surrogacy and cosmetic surgery and heterosexism in such a way that it gets mainstream media attention? Who among us is going to start talking to working class women actively engaging in unionizing efforts about their unique female struggle and why they should become radical feminists instead of stopping at economic leftism? When are we going to show up at Nancy Pelosi's house and demand universal health care and a $20 an hour federal minimum wage? When are we going to launch a protest against GLAAD and the human rights campaign for being anti-lesbian oppressors on behalf of heterosexual men in drag? When are we going to resurrect Mitchfest and arm ourselves to defend it? The time is now. We can do these things. We can do anything we decide to do. If it feels risky, if you wonder whether it's too extreme, that's a good sign it's worth doing. We have to take this movement offline. We have to take it past conversation. We have to threaten the male power structure for real. We're the only ones who can. That's what radical and lesbian feminism are all about. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 71st edition podcast on feminists getting organized in the USA. WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing their views. Thank you so much, Beth Lowe and Joy Gray, for speaking with us. Until next time, this is Thistle signing off on another WLRN podcast. If you like what you are hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation.
And if you're interested in joining our team, we are always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is April, signing off for now. This is Emily Ann signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. Thanks for listening. This is Sekhmet Shiaul. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we will focus our program on feminist mothers getting organized for the good of their daughters. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, April 7th. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interviews are released, please sign up on the WLRN WordPress site. Until next time, stay radical. And this is Jenna. Your WLRN sisters hope to see you and your lovely faces in the Mad City this April 22nd through 24th to show your support for women's free speech and for our fearless leader, Thistle, who has been harassed and singled out for years by local TRA misogynists. For more information and to register, go to sistersforsisters.com. That's sisters, the number four, sisters.com. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you. So please comment, like, and share widely. for the patriarchal kiss how will we find what needs to be shown and then after that where is home